0: Maintaining uh, relationships with uh, elected officials is can be useful should the need arise, and and potentially it also op- opens opportunities um, for the private sector. You know, because you just by virtue of having those relationships, you can learn about things um, maybe before they make the headlines.
1: hello and welcome to episode 65 of the Placemaking podcast we're excited to share this next conversation with you on the show today we have daryl o'quinn city councilor of district 5 in birmingham alabama Councilor o'quinn represents district 5 on the birmingham city council and is chair of the transportation committee and a member of the economic development and tourism education and utility and technology committees daryl has a long history of civic leadership serving as the President and Vice President of the Crestwood Neighborhood Association from 2008 through 2017. During this time, Darrell joined the Birmingham Comprehensive Plan Implementation Committee became a member of Leadership Birmingham and was elected the President of the Citizens Advisory Board from 2015 to 2017. In this episode, we learn about Councilor O'Quinn's motivation for serving in the public sector and the ways the public sector and private sector can work more closely together to solve big picture societal problems. We also discussed the ways that Birmingham is looking at growing the new sectors of their economy and providing a holistic transportation system that serves all residents. There's tons of great information in this episode, and I hope you enjoy. As always, if you've enjoyed the show, please subscribe to the show and share with your friends in the industry. There will be more exciting conversations on the shows to come, so let's get started.
2: Hey, welcome to the show, Daryl. Howdy. Glad to have you on the show. Uh, Mark's also here, and we're going to have a... Great discussion about uh, the city of Birmingham and what you are doing there as city councilor. Without further ado, I, I'd like to just jump in a little bit, get to learn more about you, Daryl, and your position as city council.
0: Yeah, so I am Daryl O'Quinn. I am the city councilor for District Five here in the city of Birmingham. I have been city councilor for uh, one term. I just started my second term in. Uh, 2021 uh, so i'll be in the seat for another three and a half years uh, uh, next election is august of 2025 my district sort of encompasses downtown and then some long stretches on either side of it a very diverse district i've got um, loft dwellers downtown and six public housing communities and then single-family residential neighborhoods some of which are doing very well and prospering and some of which have been, you know, have a lot of blight. Um, so lots of challenges and diversity there.
1: So what was the path like for you to become a city councilor? What motivated you to run for public office?
0: Yeah, so the way that I came to Birmingham was actually from Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I got my professional training at LSU in the School of Veterinary veterinary medicine. I graduated there and realized that I didn't want to do the typical clinical path and wanted to go into a more of a research path. So UAB had an excellent program that I came here for. And in the course of finding a new home, um, moved to the Crestwood community, which is over on the east side of Birmingham. To make a long story short, it was the place where I discovered what the word community really means and fell in love with the neighborhood and really wanted to get involved and, and help nurture and protect community. So, volunteered with my local neighborhood association, chaired a committee, few years later, became a neighborhood officer and moved up the ranks and was started my path towards becoming an elected official. There was never an intent to serve in those positions with the objective of of getting elected to a higher office. It was just more of a natural progression. So here I find myself a second term city councilor many years later. And but really, still doing the same sorts of things, trying to help my neighbors uh, address uh, concerns and and work with the city government to get those things done.
2: So, what really drew you to that community? It seems like it it really impacted you in a in a really deep way. So, what? what certain aspects of that community really uh, spoke to you?
0: Yeah. So, I mean, when, when I was growing up with my parents, we lived in an exurb of Baton Ridge and it was many years before we knew the people across the street. It was, you know, more of a rural kind of environment, but, but still um, there weren't the the relationships with people that lived around us. And in Birmingham, we really, Developed that like right away. The the folks who lived around us wanted to meet us. Uh, we it didn't hurt that we jumped right into doing a lot of landscaping, and so we were out in the yard. So we had the opportunity to converse with people passing by on the sidewalk, walking their dog. But there was a real desire amongst our neighbors to to get to know us, and that quickly helped us bond to that place and, and feel how special it was. I will say that one of my you know favorite things uh, about the older neighborhoods, especially in the South, is that we have front porches and sidewalks. And that design element, I think, is uh, something that contributes to community. Um, just that interface where the the homeowner can be out on the porch and that's their space that they feel safe in. And the pedestrian is on the sidewalk um, and that's a space that they feel safe in. But um, because there's a sight line and, you know, you can converse across that space, it really opens up the opportunity for people to get to know one another.
2: About to ask that if there's any aspects to that community that, that may have lent more to those those yeah, touch points that you're talking about.
0: Yeah. I'm a big fan of sidewalks. I think that it's very hard to build community without sidewalks. I think it's a fundamental element for all of the um, real estate development folks who are out there. If if you want to be a bit about building great neighborhoods, uh, sidewalks are a requirement. So Birmingham
2: is uh, it, it's kind of flown under the radar for for most people. Uh, in the South, even in general, too, it's grown really quickly. And, you know, there's certain things that are happening there that are, are lending to that growth. Uh, can you speak to those things that are more so rapidly growing that, that part of uh, the state?
0: Yeah. Um, so probably the the biggest game in town is the University of Alabama at Birmingham, uh, or UAB. Um, some people think that that stands for the university that ate Birmingham. And and there is some truth to that. The university dates back to the early 70s and has really grown dramatically. I think if you look at the rankings, um, it's definitely in the top tier of new universities, but it's even in its own right, amongst all universities. It's it's a top-tier research institution. Uh, UAB employs roughly around 25,000 and is the largest employer in the state. Alabama has also quickly, or in, in the past couple of decades, become a major manufacturing state for automobiles. And the uh, Mercedes-Benz uh, plant that's down the road in in Vance has been a major contributor. But since then, we've had several other automakers locate to the state of Alabama. And I I think that that's uh, having uh, an impact in a big way too. More recently, we have become uh, something of a tech hub. There's been a lot of focus on New companies uh, develop in startup companies. Um, the biggest company here locally that's been successful is Shipt, which is a basically an app where you can order groceries and have someone deliver those to your home. Um, that company was bought by Target a few years ago for around five hundred million dollars. Um, and they have elected to continue to be located here in the city of B- Birmingham. Um, and there's been other spinoff companies that the creator of Shipt has um, developed here. And just all of that, um, we're cu- quickly, we're, we're trying to nurture it actually, um, you know, nurture the city as a tech and innovation uh, hub. So all of those things are are contributing to the, the growth.
1: Well, you guys definitely have uh, plenty of folks who come in for, for football games and and other tourist activities, but it sounds like you've got a thriving uh, sports tourism program headed your way too.
0: Yeah. So one of the major things that's happened really in the past year has been that we have built a new stadium downtown at our convention center, the Protective Life Stadium, uh, it is going to be the, the field that the UAB football team plays at here in town, um, but we that's also helped us to leverage uh, tenants such as USFL, um, which starts in April, and that's sort of a special deal where All of the teams in USFL, because of COVID, are going to be located here in the city of Birmingham. So we're getting something like 50,000 hotel room nights um, out of it. And that's going on. We've got G League of uh, NBA playing here at our convention center. So Birmingham Squadron is our our local G League team. The Birmingham Legion is our professional uh, soccer team. We've got you know uh, minor league baseball as well. Uh, that's you know been huge for the the Parkside uh, area of Birmingham. There's something I'm missing, but you know there's there's lots of stuff that is going to be annual. But probably the biggest sporting event and the biggest win that we've had in uh, a long time is that we are going to be hosting. Uh, World Games, um, which is the, the, this will be the first time that the World Games has been hosted in the United States since the 1980s, and it'll be right here in Birmingham, July 7th to 17th. Uh, We are expecting representation from about 130 different countries with a a total of about 3,500 athletes, and... Potentially hundreds of thousands of visitors to the city, so we're actively gearing up and trying to spruce up and uh, get those potholes feel, filled, and uh, all the other things. Make sure that you know when the neighbors come over to visit, they <laughs> they don't yeah. uh, see all of our dirty laundry laying around. <laughs> Speaking of,
2: <laughs> we'll uh, we'll touch on that with with the influx of not only just outside. Um, people coming into the city for all these events um, but also your rapidly growing city as a whole uh, what are the pain points that you're facing right now in the city
0: yeah um we have had some areas uh where there's been pretty dramatic turnover especially in areas where there's predominantly multifamily uh, residences uh the renewed interest in that area town has caused rents to rapidly rise and persons to be displaced Uh, yeah i think you know in general around birmingham that's been uh, the exception rather than the rule but we do have areas of town that were formerly industrial that are now being built out with condos and other amenities and some of our zoning uh, are artifacts from the past and haven't the new zoning that we see coming hasn't yet been implemented. So we've had some some pain points there. One uh, recent example is we've had some lofts built that were pretty high dollar properties and the adjacent property owner Uh, one of the permitted uses of the property was for a dog park. Uh, (laughs) So now we've got residences that are objecting over having dog park like literally outside their window. That's that's been, you know, one of the notable things uh, and just in general trying to retrofit industrial areas uh, to be more accommodating for um, being great places to live, I would say that that's been sort of a pain point too.
1: So as your position as a city councilor, you have a, you know, an opportunity to see kind of both sides of issues and the complexity that's involved, especially like the, the dog park and the, and the housing issue. From your perspective, you know, what are the ways that the public sector and the private sector can work more closely together Um, either, you know, in small ways um, or in big kind of societal, solving societal problems?
0: Yeah, I think that it's really important for the private sector to to be engaged. Oftentimes, I I feel like folks don't interact with government until it becomes necessary. Um, And at that point, uh, those types of interactions aren't occurring under the best circumstances. So, uh, I'd say in general, uh, continuing to be engaged, and I know it's difficult to run your business and do you know essentially anything else you're you're focused on running your business and making sure that things get done, but maintaining uh, relationships with uh, elected officials is can be useful should the need arise and and potentially it also. Uh, opens opportunities um, for the private sector, you know, because you just by virtue of having those relationships, you can learn about things, um, maybe before they make the headlines there. But there's also uh, other ways that we really, the that the public sector really needs the private sector be engaged, because there's a lot of needs, especially here in the city of Birmingham, where we have a you know, a poverty rate that is around 30%. We have a lot of elderly folks who are living in homes on fixed income and have no means uh, financially to make critical repairs. Uh, one of the things that I am grateful for, extremely grateful for, is that the title sponsor for the stadium at the Convention Center, Protective Life has uh, put together an initiative to help with critical repairs in the surrounding neighborhood, and that is assistance that that neighborhood hasn't seen for, for decades um, and is, is desperately needed. You know, that's uh, one example of, of how they are going to protect their asset in in the stadium and also do good at the same time by helping folks in the surrounding community. And I could just go on down the list of, you know, all of the, the different needs that where public sector could be potentially involved, but there are certainly plenty of opportunities, plenty of opportunities. And one of the things I will say is that with the, the World Games, uh, that has largely been led by the private sector. Um, the government is heavily involved, but we have a board of directors for the World Games who are largely private sector corporate representatives. And preparing, getting the city prepared for to host these games, I think they've been able to get exposure to a lot of things that need to be attended to before we host an international event and and they are helping big time um birmingham you know there are things that i've been complaining about as a city councilor, um getting in the mayor's ear and uh because we're hosting an event this year this summer um you know a few of those things are actually <laughs> pushing up the list yeah yeah <laughs>
2: Something I'm always curious about that I've, you know, I've worked with a little bit on the private side, and I've talked to people on the show about on the private side. But to get the perspective from someone uh, that works on the public in the public sector on the, the city side about public-private partnerships and seeing the value, and I guess have you had experience on the public side dealing with those and kind of what what was your takeaways after? After doing so.
0: Yeah, actually, one of the things that I'm most proud of in general is our Birmingham on-demand public transportation system. So mm-hmm. here in the city of Birmingham, our permanent transit system, public tran- transportation system is largely a fixed route bus system. And the the headways are long, in some cases, 60 to 90 minutes and perhaps you know the route doesn't serve an area town where folks live but it is left a lot to be desired going from one part of town to another even though they may be in close proximity might take you know three hours or more uh, on that fixed route system so this is something that uh, folks have been lamenting for a long time, and I have had the occasion to take a leadership position on directing the city towards on demand microtransit. I was a fellow counselor, and I were able to uh, attend a conference several years ago where we learned about what VIA was doing in Arlington, Texas. And uh, we were really excited by that came home, got on the phone with the folks at VIA, got him, them here to town. Um, and two and a half years later, <laughs> we, uh, we have a on-demand microtransit system that is extremely popular. Um, but that's a good example of a public-private partnership uh, where we're subsidizing uh, the cost of providing the service um, and then the you know, private sector folks are, uh, have, are providing the, the actual service in the model. Um, mm-hmm. So this worked out really well. I am excited about our bus rapid transit line that is about to be completed in the next few months and all of the transit-oriented development opportunities that will be available along that route. And certainly, public-private partnerships are going to be essential Mm -hmm. in making those projects happen. Yeah, absolutely. I'm
2: familiar with VIA from my time in DFW, and and there's some very interesting things that were coming out of not just VIA, but the other private groups that were looking to target more so the on-demand mobility sector phase and it's it's definitely gone gotten some uh, traction over the years bus rapid transit's one of those that is it's easier to sell because it's not as expensive as you know light rail or or some of the larger transit uh infrastructure so uh i'd be curious to learn more about how that how that process of getting bus rapid transit system set up and and you said it's about to launch
0: right so we got a tiger grant back in 2015 for the bus rapid transit it's obviously taken us a long time to get to the implementation uh phase you know and i can't explain exactly why that is but i I just know that we're we're here and you know 60 almost 60 million dollars later we're about to Get the buses rolling and people moving it is a huge deal for the city of birmingham because as i mentioned previously our existing fixed routes have these very long headways uh, that make it an option that really isn't an option except for the folks who have no other options um, there's no convenience there you get no choice riders uh, using the the existing fixed route system but the BRT is going to have 15 minute headways so it's conceivable that someone can you know get themselves down to one of those stops and they just hang out for at most 15 minutes before a bus comes by and it will bring them anywhere along a 10.5 mile route that touches 20 plus neighborhoods uh, across the city with access to the university hospital downtown our public transit central station uh the amtrak station trailways bus also lives uh leaves out of our uh, intermodal all of our um, amtrak public transit greyhound and other transportation services are centered in that intermodal station downtown so brt is going to be a game changer for the city of Birmingham. But again, one of the things that I'm most excited about that is uh, the transit oriented development opportunities. It, in in some respects, I, I from a historical perspective, I look at the BRT and lament a little bit about what was lost here in the city of Birmingham because we had one of the most extensive streetcar systems in the southeastern United States, for sure, if not the entire United States, and that uh, was lost. And you know, I think the last streetcar ran in Birmingham sometime in the mid '70s. And a lot of those rails are probably still buried under the street, but to get back to where we were once as a city with that system would now cost in the billions of dollars for sure.
1: Well, you're really versed on the transit side and obviously on the the neighborhood development and the housing side. Is there one particular project that you're most uh, pleased with or something that you've spearheaded that you really uh, want everybody to know about?
0: Another project that I like to brag about, which uh, most cities that I think have long implemented, is um, electronic parking payments that we in Birmingham, uh, our on-street parking system, whenever I came into office, was a complete mess. There were different parts of the administration of that program that were in different departments, and it was sort of designed to fail. And on top of it, we were using parking meters that date back to the origin of on-street parking payments, uh, metered parking. Uh, we have two individuals that have the capacity to make repairs on those meters and they're they're basically clocks. So we have two clock makers who do nothing but repair clocks all day long. Uh, these clocks that are sitting on top of poles and regulating parking. Um, so going to uh, electronic parking payments is, you know, folks in other cities are probably shaking their say, heads saying, you know, good grief, where, where have you guys been? <laughs> but it, it was a, a big deal for the city of Birmingham.
1: So I know you guys have the neighborhood uh, ownership program where one person owns a lot and they can uh, maybe mow next door or take care of that adjacent property. Uh, tell, tell us a little bit about that project.
0: Yeah. So Birmingham um, has a, a lot of tax delinquent property. I think current estimates put it in the range of 20,000 plus tax delinquent parcels and we spend millions every year cutting grass for a property that we don't own. So when the Land Bank Authority was formed here in Birmingham, one of the programs that was put in place was what was, is called the Sidelot Program, where a resident that has a tax delinquent property next door can get a quick claim deed to that property. And they can, they can start legally using the property for, you know, a side garden or, you know, whatever, as long as they don't build a structure on it. That's, that's something uh, that's been pretty successful here and helped, to some extent, reduce the burden on, on the city for trying to address that form of blight. So that's the, the side lot program that's available through our Birmingham Land Bank Authority.
2: All right. Very interesting. So- You know, we've talked about programs that you've spearheaded in the past and that are currently going on in the city. But what what would you like to do in your role going forward as far as what programs would you like to see move forward under under you in the coming years?
0: Yeah, um, if I'm speaking very aspirationally, I, (laughs) I would like to get public transit funding fixed here in in the state of Alabama. Um, It's a a massive challenge for city councilor, but it's something that could be hugely helpful for the state, not only under existing conditions, but I think it's something that's necessary if we're going to be competitive against cities elsewhere in recruiting uh, employers and top-tier employees. Alabama is one of the few states in the nation that has a constitutional amendment that um, restricts the use of fuel tax uh, to roads and bridges. So there is no annually recurring um, funding for public transportation from fuel tax in, in Alabama. And that's been something that's been very limiting because our transit authorities can't plan out, you know, years in advance because they are funded in these one-off types of, of situations where it's, it's grants. There, are the, the, there is the formula funding that's uh, uh, available, um, but you can't really grow a transit authority in a major metropolitan city based on those, that type of revenue, it's the fuel tax um, and being able to project out, say, 20, 30 years and say that we're going to have that steady source of revenue that would really be transformative. Alabama, however, is is largely a rural state. So making that argument is, you know, pretty difficult. Most of our uh, state level Elected representatives uh, serve rural parts of the state and and public transportation is largely viewed as something um, that's done in cities, uh, even though rural public transit is is a real thing. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, That's that's something that, uh, you know, I hope to at least move the needle on the conversation but there's you know something that's immediately before me that i hope to accomplish is a source of income non-discrimination ordinance we have roughly 10,000 people in the city of birmingham that live in subsidized housing some of about half of that is public housing communities and and half of those residents are on vouchers but because landlords are allowed to say, hey, we're not going to take your Section 8 voucher. A lot of those residents are restricted to living in certain parts of town, and uh, in a town that was formerly known as the most segregated city in the country, it just appears as a vestige of Jim Crow. Having good conversation with my colleagues on the council here and our private sector Organizations to to move that forward certainly being done in other places successfully so uh, that's something that I hope to accomplish and we'll be very proud of if we can make it happen.
1: Well, it sounds like a great program and it it follows I think in a similar vein to trying to address you know housing affordability issues where you know I think it was St. Paul, uh, Minnesota recently passed uh, a rent increase moratorium. And, you know, there's interventions that cities are taking to address the housing issue in, in kind of tangential ways. So that's admirable. And, uh, yeah, really, really support that effort because I think that's a, both a good social cause, but also is a, a great way that the cities can lead the market, so to speak, and, and encourage your residents to, to address those issues. So, you know, our, our listening audience is pretty diverse and have a nationwide pool of people who listen in, uh, mostly about, you know, real estate and development and the built environment um generally speaking you know not just about birmingham but maybe kind of uh, thinking about cities on in a in a, in a bigger sense what are some of the things that that you would change uh, outside of some of the work you're already doing
0: this is an age-old struggle but i i would definitely do more things uh, to encourage density sprawl and the impacts of it uh you know have been and devastating i mean the city of Birmingham is an industrial city, and back in the 70s and 80s, the folks who wanted to to get out, you know, decided to move somewhere else. But you know, guess what? All the problems stayed stayed here, um, and we just have fewer resources to uh, to address those things now. So you know, planning at the the, the county scale and you know, zoning and and um, limiting how our cities grow. And I I don't have the first clue, uh, you know, how to make that happen, but certainly in other parts of the world, they've been able to keep their towns and cities and villages more dense um, than what we see here in the the United States. So I wish that that is something that, um, you know, in the future, we can do more effectively and learn the lessons of of the past and that, uh, you know, with new neighborhoods, you know, single family detached neighborhoods, you know, there's a lot of infrastructure that becomes part of the inventory that has to be maintained for for decades down the road. Um, So maybe we ought to stop and think about how we're going to pay for that stuff (laughs) um, before we agree to you know, allow that kind of thing to be, to be built.
2: Yeah. I love that discussion. I don't know if you've read strong towns, but uh, you know, it, it just as an engineer, I'm on the private side and I see this and I'm coming from a similar background as, as the author and, and to see it, it just kind of clicked. And then I I kept thinking, what, why isn't anybody else seeing it? I mean, it's, it's, it's clear and obvious, but at the same time, things are growing so fast so quickly that it's it's hard to push the brakes you know what i'm saying so i am curious do you think and this is kind of going back to city policy but what type of zoning is in birmingham right now is it the traditional euclidean zoning with certain
0: use types i assume yeah we have the traditional euclidean zoning um we are moving forward on implementing uh form-based code and certain Areas of town, which I'm definitely looking forward to, but it's it's certainly not, you know, all encompassing. And another thing that we're struggling with is that the the zoning hasn't been able to keep up with reality. The it's not changed in real time. Um, so, for example, we have a part of downtown that was under the historic industrial zoning. Um, but we have an organization that wanted to open a early childhood learning center for homeless children, and because uh, the zoning was industrial, they couldn't just go out and get a license for their child care center. Um, they actually had to, you know, apply for rezoning and go through this process, which you know they were able to do. But there was, you know, some timing issues there that. They, they had a grant that needed to be implemented by a certain time, um, and they had to have a business license for this childcare center. Zoning, changing zoning on a citywide or even a community wide scale is a slow process. It re- requires a tremendous amount of community engagement. So, I, you know, I, I don't know how to overcome that and make it more flexible, but, you know, perhaps form-based code is more, you know, amenable to that sort of thing.
1: It's great to hear you talk about the density issues and the the challenges that are, that are, our communities are facing. Um, Accessory dwelling units are a hot topic in a lot of communities and they're not the fix, but they're one tool among many. Um, But talk a little bit more about uh, your interest in the missing middle and accessory dwelling unit topic.
0: Yeah, I think it's uh, something that a lot of folks don't consider maybe, um, but it would help solve a lot of uh, problems. I live in a neighborhood that, back in the 90s, uh, the residents fought hard for single family detached residential. And we have a few units that were a few, I don't want to call them houses, but they're because they're really more like apartment buildings um, that were sort of grandfathered in. Um, And I'm thankful for those places, those residences, because it adds diversity to the neighborhood. But in the meantime, our zoning code does allow accessory dwelling units. And that's, uh, I think, something that especially as people get older, um, they should strongly consider, you know, making that garage into an apartment or the carriage house uh, in some of the older neighborhoods converting that to uh, an ADU, I think just makes a lot of sense, Um, provides a source of income for folks who uh, are are going to be on SSI or, you know, retirement. And, you know, that may not meet all of their needs with inflation and everything. So I I think uh, accessory dwelling units can be transformative for individuals, but also for neighborhoods, uh, increasing the density and and vibrancy of a neighborhood, yeah, absolutely. And I want to transition a
2: little bit here now. To you're talking about all the sporting events coming up, but what uh, if I was to visit Birmingham now, being an outsider? Where where should I go? What should I go visit? What should I see to truly experience Birmingham as you would like to to show?
0: Yeah, so an absolute must on the list is Vulcan Park and Museum. Um, So we have the largest, I believe it's the largest cast iron statue in the world. It's a big statue of Vulcan holding up a spear uh, on top of Red Mountain that speaks to the um, legacy of the steel industry here in Birmingham. It was originally built for exhibition in the 1905 World's Fair, I believe. So you you can go up underneath, right underneath, go up the tower and be right underneath Vulcan and overlook all of Jones Valley, where Birmingham lies. Um, so it's it's a great place to learn about the city's history, but also a great vantage point to see the lay of the land. There's all, also the Barber's uh, Motorsports Park and Museum. Um, Uh, Barber's Museum there has the largest collection of motorcycles in the world. Mm. Uh, It it is a museum that is of the highest absolute caliber, you know, on on the level of um, Smithsonian-type displays. So that one's uh, an absolute must. And then, you know, the Civil Rights Museum downtown, which um, is a great place to go and learn about the, the birthplace of the civil rights movement. And right across from the Civil Rights Museum is Kelly Ingram Park, where the children's marches were staged. Um, and, you know, in the images that people remember from the 1960s of uh, the fire hoses and the dogs, that was where that all took place. So. Uh, if you could hit those three places uh, on your visit, you'd be doing well. Is there any
2: uh, really interesting developments? You talked about some of the industrial sites being infilled with uh, more so the residential, the density. Is there any certain developments uh, without giving preferential treatment, but just saying that, that we definitely need to visit or um, have really increased the value in the
0: area? Yeah, um, Railroad Park has transformed the, the whole park side area of a town. It was really a warehouse district and uh, Railroad Park is a four block long, I believe it's 13 acres, um, that is really the living room of Birmingham. Um, and that park Uh, made it possible for us to attract the Birmingham Barons from the suburbs back into the city. Um, We built a $64 million ballpark to house them, and all of that transformed the area around it. I think property values have, over the last decade, have gone up 2,000% or thereabouts. Um, So it went from being a, a warehouse district to now being the home of thousands of of city center residents and folks who may remember Birmingham from the days before Railroad Park, if they went there now, uh, they would have no idea where they are because they wouldn't recognize it.
1: Yeah, wow. Well, we really appreciate your time and are excited to learn more about Birmingham and uh, continue to make the connections with the ongoing work that you're doing and future projects where can we go to learn more about uh, your individual district and also the city of Birmingham itself
0: yeah so um, the my personal um, council website is bhamd5.com uh, and that'll tell you a little bit about myself and what's going on in my district um, but then the, the the city's website Birmingham al.gov uh, is a good place to find out not only what's going on in the city council office, but also on the mayor side of things. So we we do like everyone else, uh, Instagram, Facebook, um, and all the other social media outlets. So uh, pick your outlet of choice and and follow us.
1: All right anything else in particular that we haven't addressed that you'd like to speak to?
0: Um, I'll just mention this briefly. Uh, we We have had uh, shared micromobility as a relatively new form of transportation here in the city of Birmingham over the last couple of years, and um, like, every other city in America where that's come in. uh, We've had our struggles with it. We were a little little bit behind the curve. So we were able to anticipate some of the the pitfalls, uh, but we did not anticipate COVID um, and hundreds of teenagers uh, being out of school and wanting something to do. So we had, an incident right after the launch of the shared micromobility services here, where uh, at Railroad Park, hundreds of teenagers or college kids or young adults, let's call them, mm-hmm. um, descended on that part of town. And um, the scooters and bikes were an attraction. Um, but we had to shut it down. Um, for a while, because the residents in the adjacent uh, buildings were um, complaining about the, the all-night parties.
2: Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a, that's a good word of warning. And uh, yeah, those. I mean, there's there's no foolproof method that's going to make everybody happy. But uh, right. when you have a bunch of uh, teenagers that have nothing better to do and have been stuck inside all day. Uh, <laughs> you, it's a it's a bad
0: bad mix. <laughs>
1: it's place making that's a little too successful.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's 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 been great. I mean, you know, the the complaint with with that is always uh the sidewalk riding and um you know, leaving vehicles parked on the sidewalk for extended periods of time. Um but the Companies that we have operating here in the city of Birmingham have been very responsive, um, and while not perfect, there at least uh, there is an open dialogue. So uh, we are in conversation, and they're doing their best to try and address our concerns.
2: Great, All great. Right.
1: Well, Matt, do, you want, do you want to do the exit?
0: Yeah, yeah, sure.
2: Yeah, we, we really appreciate all your time, Dale. It's, it's interesting to hear about what kind of struggles the city's facing, but also kind of the, the bright side, what, what you're looking forward to. And and your big push towards transit is is obviously going to, you know, propel that city to even greater heights and greater growth. Uh, hopefully a little more, you know, tamed growth to where, uh, you know, it's responsible but um, we, we really appreciate all your time and uh, look forward to keeping up with you as, as you, we see your, your continued tenure over the
0: next, next few years. All right. Well, thank you for having me, Matt and Mark. I thank really you. Appreciate it. it. All
1: right. Stay have a good late. day.